What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period, an all of the above podcast extra. As you know, we like to drop these in between our full episodes. Our full episodes are chock full of dopeness with super dope guests and multiple headlines and all that good stuff. And they also take a long time to um, produce and edit and get together and arrange and all that. So these passing periods feature just Jeff and myself. My name is Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And I'm here with Jeff, Mr. Super Duper Dope principal leader man and i suppose i should start jeff by just wishing you a very very happy january 6th um how are you how are you celebrating um this this anniversary of of democracy and and standing up for um for america see i thought you was about to say a happy new year and then i was gonna say it's interesting because we're right on the cusp i feel like we're like you can't keep saying happy new year to people like it becomes a little awkward right, right? uh but it's still it's still good we're, we're like within a week uh so it's still good but um but then you just hit me man with the january <laughs> the january 6th um yeah i think we should call this as you said this should just be known from here on out is like freedom day um Ooh, you know, great, great yeah. triumph of uh, white nationalist, fascist, Christian nationalism day, maybe, um, you know, de- delusion day. I don't know what we should call delusion it. Delusion day. I yes. like that one. Delusion day. I really like that one. Yes. White supremacist fantasy awesome. day. Um, yeah. January 6th is still honestly is one of those things that like, it's not surprising that January 6th happened. The way it did, but also you can't help but have watched that and just be like, America's crazy. Like, what can you imagine if uh, <laughs> if any other group of people no. had done that? There would have been blood flowing in the streets. The Capitol steps would still be red right now with the stains of the bodies that the police would have left just strewn across the the steps and the grass of the U.S. Capitol as terrorists invade. Uh, And meanwhile, these folks went in and took a crap on Nancy Pelosi's desk or whatever and uh, and got a slap on the wrist and and, you know, yeah, pat on on the back. Talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, only one group allowed to do anything like that. That is for sure. That reminds me of just like just being a a, a young black child in America and how many times I, I was told by various uh various folks, various elders that like, yeah, just because those kids could do that doesn't mean you can do that. You know, whether it was like, you know, speaking speaking um a little too uh, disrespectfully towards towards the elder or just acting out in any other kind of way. Anytime I pointed to somebody else doing that who wasn't black, uh the answer was always like, they could do that. They they could get away with that, but not your black ass. Like this is a uh, this is one of those adult moments of like, yeah, that group could do that and walk away and be on all the podcasts and live to talk about it, but not not anybody else. So yeah, and we are only one one year away from who knows what the next um, inauguration day or not that wasn't even inauguration day. Um, but in any case, who knows what the next um, January will look like as. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to open up with that. Let's, um, let's talk about something, um, positive, Jeff. First, I want to congratulate you and your home state of Minnesota for adopting what I saw in the headline was a, uh, a new not racist state flag for Minnesota. So I guess y'all saw racism. So, uh, congrats to you and your Minnesota peoples for figuring that out. Um, 
it looks pretty good from i don't know if you have a particular opinion about it but the flag looks dope i don't know anything about yeah. the history of it i don't know what's wrong with the previous flag the new flag looks pretty dope well i'm i'm not going to pretend to be an expert uh on it manuel but i i will say that uh like many things in america the previous day flag was uh problematic in its uh you know sort of just racist historical uh, representations of uh, the of the genocidal actual nature of the history of uh, settler colonialism in that part of the country. Um, the new uh, state flag uh, doesn't do that. <laughs> and so it's better, uh, I think, is <laughs> like the simple conclusion. Right. Um, I you know, it's fine. I don't. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the new one, to be honest, but like, whatever, it's cool. I, you know, I'm fine. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm always in favor of making things less racist, <laughs> at, at least, uh, you know, because it's not like they're giving back the land or anything, you know. True. So let's, let's not overstate the impact here. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, like, it's cool when they rename lakes, like the indigenous name, and they take off racist colonizer people from the street names or the school names. I'm like, cool, nice. Let's good step in the right direction. And we should do more of this all the time. And that's kind of how I feel about it. It's like, great, stop being racist, make it not racist. And, you know, let's do a lot more of that too. So yes, happy it happened. Go Minnesota. And we should probably give some of that land back. Facts. You know, as you shared that right now, I was thinking about the conversation we had before we started recording. And I asked you about your holidays over there in uh, Minnesota. And you mentioned how, you know, it was a, a, a global warming Christmas where it was not uh, snow and all that, you know, it was not the white Christmas. And I'm thinking, huh, maybe it wasn't a classic white Christmas because uh, Minnesota is now too woke for that, too woke. And um, white evidently is is no longer allowed in Minnesota because y'all got this super woke flag now and you no longer get a white Christmas because that is apparently racist as well, Jeff. So y'all are just going way too far over there. Mm. Well, Jeff, we have a, a passing period and a lot has happened since our last passing period. So much has happened. I guess, I suppose, I uh, should have mentioned this at the top, but we do hope everyone is doing well. Thank you for joining us for another passing period here on All of the Above. Uh, we hope everybody got whatever it is that they needed for this winter break, whether it was time with family, whether it was time alone, whether it was rest, whether it was whatever. Uh, hopefully you got some of that. And if you are just now returning back to school, I know uh, for me, class to start on Monday. We are recording this on Saturday, January 6th. Uh, so I'll be back in the building on Monday. Uh, we hope everybody has a, um, a great transition back to the day-to-day -day work of education for sure. And since so much happened since our last passing period, we thought for this week's passing period, we will discuss uh, a couple of stories, uh, just touching on some of the big things that you might have missed over the course of your, your holiday break. And our most recent passing period, which was way back December 17th, so long ago, we talked about Oklahoma banning DEI, like just straight up across, you know, all state agencies and universities and colleges. And we also talked about artificial intelligence and um, just in general, its impact on the classroom. So we're gonna start this passing period by 
we, we got some additions to those stories. Some things happened over break, uh, particularly on the DEI front. And we figured we'd start by talking about that. So, Jeff, when we last had a conversation on this passing period, we were talking about Oklahoma and how far they've gone uh, to target DEI programs and DEI um, initiatives across the state, across universities, uh, across colleges, and just how how far to the right the nation has gone since the so-called racial reckoning of 2020. And since recording that episode, the uh, DEI space in education has taken further hits, most notably I'm just going to read the headline from the Washington Post. Um, Conservative anti-DEI activists claim victory in Harvard leaders fall. So, Jeff, let's start with that. Just, you know, there's been a lot of conversation already about uh, Claudine Gay and her resignation. What's that? I, I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts about the intersections between what happened with Doc, uh, Dr. Claudine Gay at Harvard and what we see happening across the education landscape when it comes to attacks on curriculum, attacks on anything dealing with race, anything dealing with culture. It's definitely anything anti-racism related and this overall targeting of DEI. Yeah, man. Well, it's it's a it's a sad moment, I think, in um in our nation's history, through when we look at it through the lens of what's happening in education, and when we look at it through the lens of the the sort of state of affairs of what I have called and will continue to call the the psychological psychological warfare being waged upon us by our right wing extremist uh, neighbors here. Uh, who are weaponizing the institution of school against us. And um, I think, you know, what what happened to Claudine Gay, who, you know, now has stepped down as president of Harvard and who is, uh, I believe, has kept her position as a member of the faculty. But you can be certain the attacks against her are not going to just disappear, uh, <laughs> even as a member of the faculty. Um, but... I think, Manuel, it is, it's just very telling um, and not surprising that what we saw manifest here is another expression of some of the same, like, really bizarre, but really problematic dynamics that we've been talking about periodically on the show now for for quite some time, which is the, the sort of right-wing white supremacist group using the the sort of veneer of a righteous uh, a, a claim of righteousness around wanting to rid the world of anti-Semitism to attack DEI generally and to attack uh, leaders of color. Uh, and in this case, not at all, surprisingly, a black woman leader at the nation, essentially the nation's premier elite private uh, university um, and to successfully lobby for her ouster by means of propaganda, by means of media pressure, and by means of financial pressure um, as well. And I think that is something that we we should not take lightly at all, uh, because it, it tells us, Manuel, that 
you know, it's not if we look historically, extreme right wing movements um, and honestly, uh, you can probably say the same thing for extreme left wing movements, although um, I think we've seen a lot fewer of the of those examples historically. But definitely, um, <clears throat> pardon me, extreme right wing movements um, always go after education, right? Like go after the books, they go after the professors, they go after the universities, they go after the educational components of labor unions, right? Um, and we are seeing this play out right in front of us right now, right? Like this, this is a, this is a dangerous step forward. The ousting of a leader who I, I think it's fair to say by any rational an honest measure did not do anything that deserved her immediate ouster. Um, I don't know Claudine Gay's, you know, I don't know her personally. I don't know the, you know, all the ins and outs of the minutia of what's happening at Harvard. Maybe there's other reasons to not like her or whatever it probably is. Right. But it's fair to say that, um, you know, there's there's a lot of white dudes out there in charge of colleges and universities who have done things comparable to what she did in terms of missing a citation in an article from 20 years ago or whatever. Uh, I, you know, I'm not saying it was exactly 20 years ago, but you get my point. Right. Right. Um, who who maintain their positions of power. Right. And who have the backing of the, you know, the boards for their, uh, you know, for their universities. And Claudine Gay did not receive that same privilege. And uh, I think this is yet another piece of evidence of, of the, you know, intrusion into education that our that our right wing extremist neighbors are having. And it is a it's a call to us to be ever more vigilant about what's happening right now. Um, they are they are intending to do us harm and they are doing us harm. And I, I say that with no hyperbole, <laughs> Manuel. I'm not saying that to be extremist or anything, but to say that, like that, you know, this is a this is a white supremacist, white nationalist uh, agenda here that that means to, you know, at best have the results of their efforts be some version of erasure of us from the curriculum and from positions of power, um, and at worst. That supports, you know, actual violence against uh, people of color and poor people and LGBTQ folks and other marginalized groups. And so um, this this is scary stuff, man. And I, I had hoped as a, as an alumni of Harvard, uh, who was there at a time when they had a terrible president and Larry Summers, OK, uh, who kept his job somehow with his old racist self. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the juxtaposition yeah. of Larry Summers and Claudine Gay is, is, would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Yeah, it would be funny. It would be funny. Um, but yeah, this is, so, I mean, there's so much to say about this and a lot has already been said, <clears throat> but for me, the name that I see keep popping up around this story is the same name that I kept seeing pop up in the early days of the CRT hysteria. And that's, of course, um, Christopher Rufo. So um, 
you know, I was thinking about what happened with Claudine Gay and it all snowballed. And from, you know, the time from when the, those university presidents agreed to like show up to Congress for a congressional hearing. And, and that was probably their, their mistake right there. Because what's most clear to me in all of this is the fact that you cannot engage bad faith actors in good faith. And time after time, whether it be uh, education leaders, whether it be, you know, um, political leaders, whether it be folks online, so many times these bad faith actors such as Christopher Rufo are engaged in good faith by those who are trying to prove that like, look, CRT actually isn't that. Look, CRT actually is this. And, you know, in this case, this, the DEI, discuss, DEI discussions, which started with these three university presidents showing up for anti-Semitism hearing. And that was their mistake because this this hearing about campus speech and anti-Semitism, of course, anti-Semitism has no place in in uh, our discourse, has no place online. There, there is no place for anti-Semitism. But we know that these right wing folks that were utilizing anti-Semitism as like their their tool to get these to draw these university presidents in were acting in bad faith because what they were considering to be anti-Semitism isn't actually anti-Semitism. And that, of course, is is uh, asking for free Palestine. Um, and, you know, we could debate about, you know, the, the intricacies of what, what that means to different folks. But for the most part, I think it's really, really, really clear by now that asking for uh, one population to be free, to have freedom, does not automatically equate to asking for another population to be attacked, to be eliminated, to be destroyed. So, like, asking for freedom for one group does not mean that you want the destruction of the people of another group. Uh, but these these bad faith actors, these, these folks who drew these university presidents in to talk about anti-Semitism, set a trap. Uh, Claudine Gay, unfortunately, and the other university presidents, they fell into that trap. They weren't vocal enough against anti-Semitism. They weren't, they didn't say the right thing strongly enough. And that just started a snowball effect. And, you know, other university presidents were forced out. And when it came to Claudine Gay, it looked like she was being supported enough to survive that onslaught, those accusations of her not doing anything to attack or to address anti-Semitism. And then this plagiarism stuff came up and then that was like the final straw. And these bad faith actors who do not care about, they like just frankly, the right wing in America does not care about the health and well-being of Jewish people. These are the same folks who were chanting on Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us. Like they do not care about the well-being of Jewish people, just like they do not care about the success and well-being of Asian Americans and Asian families, but they will use that, utilize that to attack affirmative action. They will utilize anti-Semitism to attack these university presidents that they consider to be woke. All the evidence is there. Uh, I mentioned Christopher Rufo as a bad faith actor. He almost, like in his own words, admits to that. If you just follow anything that he posts, follow his um, you know, look at his Twitter timeline. Most of the articles that are about Claudine Gay, many of them have cited him and pointed out that he has specifically said that he was targeting DEI efforts. He has written blogs about, I'm just going to uh, call out some some random blogs that uh, exposing the DEI scam. Um, Dear Harvard, abolish DEI, Claudine Gay's DEI empire. He's published all this stuff. Um, he clearly, clearly is targeting DEI, which by the way, is synonymous with just black, black, anything, anything that is about uh, anything Word. that is about doing yeah. right for black people, anything that is about uh, exposing and interrogating America's legacy of white supremacy, anything that's about trying to support and uplift 
uh, black Americans and by extension, all marginalized groups into a uh, multiracial, multi-ethnic, multinational democracy where everybody has opportunity and has the space to be free and to be fully themselves. Like when they say DEI is a problem, like that, they're talking about black people and by extension, all other marginalized groups. So, you know, he's laid out himself how this was all about going after DEI, but it started with this congressional hearing about campus speech in the wake of reports of anti-Semitism. So again, bad faith actors that were never really concerned about anti-Semitism, just like they were never really concerned about, um, you know, CRT and teachers telling, uh, teaching kids that like white people are automatically bad, that they know that's not happening. They know that like there aren't teachers out there that are just saying like automatically if you're white, you need to feel guilty. You're a bad person. Like that's not happening, but these are bad faith actors that don't really care about being truthful in what's happening. What they care about is their, um, their mission, uh, which of course is to uphold a, a right wing conservative white supremacist view of the nation and, uh, view of education and they are winning in a lot of ways they're winning they are winning oklahoma banned dei all across all across the state other states i'm sure are following we already have all the crt bans out there they targeted anything related to gender and we're about to talk about a story where an actual police officer walked into a classroom to find uh, a book that was uh, that violated something because it the book is um gender queer we'll talk about that in a moment so like they're winning in all these ways affirmative action's already been struck down like all of these things are happening. So again, we cannot engage these bad faith actors in good faith. And I know I rambled a lot there, but it's just, uh, there's just so much going on. And it's just so clear that this is like, these folks are acting in bad faith and, and political leaders keep falling for it and keep trying to find a middle ground, keep trying to, to be not controversial and, and to, you know, hear folks out and to all that. And it's just like, you cannot do that when folks are acting in bad faith. That's why we're losing so much in education right now when it comes to uh, what we're allowed to uh, teach and what we're allowed to, to do. It's just all so frustrating. It is deeply frustrating, Manuel. I, I feel you on that. I, I think what is also very telling right now and and we don't you know this is an education show so we'll uh we'll find another podcast to go deeper on <laughs> on this point manuel but uh in as much as i said earlier like i think we we as educators need to be extremely vigilant about this and need to be organizing within our various institutions um to combat these efforts it is very clear painfully clear that there is no meaningful political opposition in the halls of power to these right wing folks. Right. So like, you know, Chuck Schumer ain't coming to save us on this. Right. Like there, there is exactly zero uh, power being leveraged in any meaningful or consequential way to oppose this massive right wing pendulum swing that, that we're we have experience in, in education, uh, K-12 and higher ed over the last, you know, three, four, five years in particular. And so I think there's a certain like coming to grips with that reality that we have to have that like, you know, voting on November, whatever is not actually going to solve this problem. Um, and you know, I'm not saying, throw up your hands and do nothing then. But we just have to be real about the fact that like the the type of power that is going to need to be mobilized to combat this is not going to come 
from the mayor's office. It's not going to come from the governor's mansion. It's not going to come from the Supreme Court. It's not going to come from, you know, the halls of Congress or the White House. It's going to come from us, from masses of people, educators, communities, families who uh, do not want this. <laughs> and the reality is, I do believe the majority in this country does not want this. That these white supremacists, uh, you know, white nationalist folks have a relatively small and extremely dangerous and committed uh, group of constituents. And then they got a lot of folks that will sit by and watch and let it happen. Um, and then they got a lot of folks who don't want this to happen, but are stymied because we're not organized well uh, right now. So... Anyways, all that yeah. to say, Manuel, I, you know, I think what you were saying was was facts on facts on facts. And, uh, you know, we uh, we got to stay vigilant out here because uh, these folks are coming and um, and we need strength. And our strength comes in in numbers and people and uh, they can't take that away from us. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And this will. This will not be our our last story related to DEI um, or anything within the realm of anti-racism, I'm sure. So, Jeff, there is, uh, you know, so, all right. So last press period, we talked about DEI and we talked about Oklahoma banning it. Um, we also talked about artificial intelligence, AI in the classroom. And since then, a um, new survey has has come out that has had some some figures to, to kind of paint a clearer picture about how teachers feel about artificial intelligence. So let's just touch on those uh, those numbers a little bit. Uh, I think we the both of us are on record as being not not feeling great, not feeling good about the direction of AI, um, generally speaking, and definitely being highly skeptical about the uh, the use of AI in the classroom, given that, you know, this is a billion dollar industry and these uh, giant tech companies are not doing it. Uh, utilizing any of this technology really for for our benefit or the benefit of our students, but of course for their own profits. So um, I don't know if other teachers agree with us. What what do we got in the survey? What are some of the numbers with regards to how teachers are feeling about artificial intelligence? Yeah, well, um, so Manuel, the, this uh, information we're pulling from an article that uh, appeared in LA School Report. Uh, written by Francie Alexander. This was uh, from December 27th. And it's titled, How Do Teachers Feel About Their Jobs and the Impact of AI? New Survey Has Answers. So uh, this survey that they're referencing is done by HMH, the, uh, the publisher. Um, and it's kind of interesting, Manuel. So um, there's two components of it. There's a component that talks about like educator confidence in the profession, which it, by their results seems to be inching upward. It had hit an all time low in 2022. And I think that's maybe not surprising. We had had the like three years in a row of like, this is the hardest year ever. No, this is also the hardest year ever. And, you know, and then now it's still hard. And uh so it's inching up and that, that's hopefully a positive thing from the standpoint of just like stabilization and sustainability of the workforce, uh, especially in the midst of, in general, a teacher shortage across the country. Um, so that's 
Good. They do say in the article that the index score on this survey of 42, which is up from 40 in the previous year, still represents a score that correlates to a C grade, which, you know, we all know C grades are like, all right, you passing. But like, you know, <laughs> you're not going to have a whole lot of good options with that. Not great. <laughs> with that on your Correct. on your transcript. Right. Um, so there's work to be done, but maybe, a you know, some some positive movement. So it's important to acknowledge that. And then really the bulk of the article, Manuel, talks with a little more detail in a way that I actually like feel pretty good about based on our previous conversation about AI. Because you are right. I remain highly skeptical. I, I still maintain that our stance on AI and education needs to be the presumption that it is harmful until we can prove that it's not. And uh, that in general, that is the approach that we take for lots of things that kids interact with. Like we take that approach with field trips in many ways, for example, right? Like, you know, you can't br bring kids to places unless we can can substantiate that like this is going to be safe, right? Um, and so there's plenty of field trips that I had to say no to as an administrator because there was gonna, you know, like the, it was really hard to take kids on a field trip where they'd be swimming, for example, because of the, right. the risk, right? Um, and one could argue that swimming is a hell of a lot safer than a unregulated regulated AI uh, for our children or unregulated social media for that matter. But all that to say, uh, some of the data in this study was pretty interesting. So first of all, um, about 31% of educators surveyed felt optimistic about the sort of um, newest AI tools available to students. Now, that is it certainly a minority, but also, you know, maybe interesting, right, that there is a segment of educators who are beginning to use AI tools and feeling like there's potential here that could be constructive. And honestly, some of the most trustworthy voices in this equation that I'm willing to listen to is educators who have tried it and are like giving us feedback about their experience. I certainly trust them more than I trust whatever tech companies are out here making stuff. Okay. Um, you know, obviously we still need to have a skeptical eye on things, but like, okay, I'm interested in their opinion and would actually love to know more about what folks are, are seeing. Um, and uh, the survey showed that more than half, about 57% of educators agree that generative AI is inevitable and should be harnessed positively in the classroom. 58% um, said they would be interested in professional development and coaching around the new technology. That, I think, is really interesting, right? They're like... There is a certain resignation to the fact that like this tool is here, the cat is out of the bag, it can't be put back in. And so what we need is uh, is really helpful opportunities for educators to learn, right, to kind of get up to speed on what is available for kids and also to think constructively about what might be safe uses of this technology in the educational setting. And that, I think, is actually... A positive thing, right? People often have this stereotype that like educators are a bunch of Luddites who like, you know, just wish that we still had chalk and slate and nothing ever changes in school. And there, there's an angle on that conversation that I, I understand because school looks in some very important ways a lot like it has since the 1800s. 
And I think it's disingenuous from the standpoint of like school is radically different today than it was when you and I went to school. Okay. Let alone when our grandparents went to school. Like stuff is radically different from a technology standpoint, radically different from a standpoint of the curriculum that is, you know, that's being taught and radically different in terms of the standpoint of like, what are we actually trying to accomplish? Like, what is our stated purpose of education, which used to be like sort out the kids we're going to go work at the factory from the kids who are going to go to fancy colleges. And, and, you know, that's, that's not what we at least say on paper we're trying to do anymore, which means the work is totally different in terms of meeting the needs of a much more diverse, uh, student population. So, um, so I think, um, it is interesting to me, Manuel, the, the openness, the, the majority of teachers who are open to, learning more about AI and wanting to explore how this could be used constructively in the classroom. To me, that is a positive sign because I feel like it's sort of, I don't know, it, it, it makes me infer in this a healthy sense of skepticism. Like, I want to learn more, but I'm not just going to open the floodgates to some nonsense in my classroom that could be harmful or dangerous. And I think that's the right stance from educators. So I, I'm encouraged by what I see here. I still remain super skeptical about AI as a as a potentially predatory influence on young people and the, the institution of school enabling that. But um this survey data gives me some, you know, collective appreciation for our profession in in our thinking about this. But what, what's your take, Manuel? Yeah, I don't really know whether to look at this as positive or not. I, I think it's um, I wasn't super shocked by any of the numbers. I definitely that 57 percent who agree that generative AI is inevitable and should be harnessed positively, you know, put me in the 43 uh, percent camp who does not want to just sit here and say it's <laughs> inevitable and that we should just learn to use it positively in the classroom. Because just like I said last episode, I, I, I just think that's throwing our hands up and letting these tech giants go ahead and do what they want. And we just sit back thinking like, oh, it's also inevitable. We might as well learn how to use it positively because, you know, we were saying the same things for cell phones early on. And I think most teachers who are in the classroom right now today would agree that cell phones are more of a problem than they are a um, positive thing in the classroom. So, you know, just throwing our hands up and just allowing it to happen. Like, I still don't like that. Um, I get why 57% would say that it is inevitable because it feels that way. And it, uh, to be honest, the way <laughs> the way uh, capitalism works, it probably is inevitable because these tech giants are so massive and have so much money in our politicians pockets and so much influence on everything that like it does feel like it's it's hard to stop. But it's just frustrating. It's just frustrating to me that it's just moving so fast and we can't just call the time out like yesterday. I don't know if you saw that story, Jeff, about about that, that plane that like the, the emergency door or that the area that would be the emergency door like blew off mid-flight and like you know it landed safely nobody died thankfully but like the images of a whole chunk of airplane not there and just imagine what it'd be like to be like up in the sky and a whole chunk of the airplane just falls off and you're just strapped to your seat hoping that you don't get sucked out um and plummet like that that actual uh plane whatever that was boeing whatever like just this morning i see the, the notification the 737 max yeah i, I mean <laughs> what, whatever it is yeah. I, I saw the notification this morning that they're all grounded until further like so when it comes to something like that it's like yo there might be a danger here even though this has happened only one time out of all the thousands of flights of this of this particular plane over the last month or two 
it's only happened the one time, we're still going to ground all of them to make sure that we know what's up because one time is one time too many. Like we can act like that when it's a freaking plane because it's so vivid and concrete that like, yeah, we, we need planes to not fall apart when they're up in the sky. But when it comes to AI, it's like there could be all these dangers that are so much more than just one airplane losing uh, losing a chunk. So much more danger in terms of the, the how many folks are, are impacted by it. But like, we're just going to keep it rolling and hope that like it works out. I saw... I saw a video on TikTok that was uh, Malcolm X speech and I was listening to it and it was like folks were hyping up how Malcolm X was like so down for Palestine and was speaking out against Zionism. And I was listening to it and I'm like, I've never heard this Malcolm X speech. It sounds really good quality for it to be, you know, a lot of his speeches are not great quality because, you know, a lot of his speeches were, were uh, really early on. Uh, a lot of the, you know, speeches that, that I'm thinking of were like pretty early on and in, in terms of the audio quality, you know, there's crowd noise and all that stuff, but this one, you know, had less of that. And I'm like, what, did he really say all of this? And some of the language he was using just didn't really fit what, you know, I, I have no doubt, no doubt that Malcolm, you know, Malcolm X for sure will be on the side of, of freedom of, of all peoples, particularly in this particular case, uh, freedom for Palestinians who are who are undergoing such massive, massive trauma right now. But like the speech just didn't add up to me. And then, you know, I did some sleuthing. I went to the comments. Most of the comments were like, you know, praising him and this and that, whatever, whatever. But like one or two were like, is this real? And, you know, it turns out it wasn't real. But like it was super believable. Like if I didn't take the time to like really look into it, I would have just, you know, been like, hell yeah, you know, there's Malcolm X, man, did it again. But like, you know, so AI does that, like it's that powerful and it's so early on that like so much stuff that's out there that's floating around is already AI generated, already a danger. So like this idea of us just like, oh, it's inevitable, let's, let's roll with it. But this one plane, a uh, door blows out and now all that whole airline is grounded or that whole, that type of plane is grounded. Like why? Why can't we act, why can't we do that when it comes to AI or or any of the stuff that that uh, billion dollar Silicon Valley is trying to like force on us so fast that we don't have time to react? Okay, I know I'm going on a tangent, but like that, that those are my thoughts about the survey. I wish that 57% who agree that it's inevitable, you know, I, I wish fewer folks agree that it was inevitable so that maybe us, the teachers, the ones who actually interact with students every single day could could press pause, hit timeout and say, look, before y'all force this on us, by force, I mean, just make it so that it's so uh just everywhere that like we have no choice but to like adopt it and, and and make use of it let's collectively stop and collectively demand um some some protocols some regulations some more information about what happens with the student data more just all, all the basic things that need to happen but you know yeah. so i guess that's my thought about this survey jeff yep i i appreciate that manuel i'm gonna go on a mild tangent here for a moment because over over the recent years, I have taken to following some some YouTube aviation channels, and not, I'm not an expert, but I have learned a few things about aviation, okay. uh, Manuel, including uh, always buckle your seatbelt on a plane unless you're literally standing up in the bathroom. After that, get back to your seat and buckle that seatbelt because it's highly unlikely. But every now and then, <laughs> a door flies off for no reason. <laughs> And people get sucked <laughs> out into the air uh, or pushed out is maybe the, the more correct uh, explanation as uh, the pressurization difference equalizes. Uh, and 
you best have that seatbelt on. That's all I want to say uh, on that matter. And, Manuel, it's interesting that you talked about this because it's making the sort of, um, you know, there's an element of capitalism here, right? That, that like, the profit motive is so corrosive to the public good in so many ways. And yet... We're seeing like both sides of this play out in the aviation example you gave. And I'm wondering like how we might be able to create something like this in, <laughs> in education, perhaps, because this plane that just had the door fly off the 737 Max, you might recall this plane debuted several years ago and, it, and there were a couple of crashes, like unexplicable yeah. plane crashes in Asia where they found out that there was like a programming glitch in the computer that was causing the planes to like essentially take a nosedive that the pilots couldn't recover the plane from. And so they grounded those planes across the entire world for a period of time and then they started slowly bringing it back um and i think the united states is one of the last countries to bring back this plane now boeing has been a legendary you know company uh the aviation industry is like a a pinnacle of an industry that prioritizes safety and learns from its mistakes to make things safer right um and in some ways like school our, our in, quote unquote industry so relies on the belief that it's safe, that if that fails, <laughs> like people won't come. Right. And and so it like it will fall apart. Now, I guess school is different because kids are mandated to come to school. But um, in this era of school choice, like people will go away from places that are just not safe. And um and so there's also this strong incentive for these like greedy capitalist companies to make sure that things are safe. Um, but yet we see this plane that, that had that scandal and now has potentially another scandal on its hand, uh, you know, happening. And, and so anyways, I, all that to say, it does make me think there's potentially a uh, a source of power in this equation that is a constituency of families who want school to be safe. And if AI, if we are I, I, successful, maybe feels like the wrong term because it's it's not that I'm like inherently um, anti AI. It's that I I believe we need a proven uh, like a harmful until proven safe orientation towards AI. And it's it's just 100% true that we do not have any effective regulatory mechanism in place right now um, over these tools, which makes it problematic for all of us, let alone the most vulnerable people in our society, which are children. And so, you know, maybe some hope in this equation, Manuel, is that families could have great sway, parents and you know, groups out there could have could have great uh, political sway in saying like, well, hold up, hit the brakes here. We need to ensure safety before we just say, oh, well, this is fun. Let's play with it. Or this, you know, can write papers for us. So this can this is the future. So we want to be on the cutting edge of the future. Like, who cares if you're on the cutting edge of the future? If, like you said, I almost fell for that that fake Malcolm X speech myself, uh, you know. And we like, how many degrees do we have between the two of I us know. right here? Like, yeah. like, like five and and a half, let's say. And and we 
almost fell for it. And we both as history teachers or former history teachers, and I've read and listened to like dozens and dozens of Malcolm X speeches in my day. And it took me a minute to be like, I don't think this is real. Um, or yeah. maybe it was written and they had some AI, you know, read it or whatever. Right. Um, and it's just not a speech I'm, I'm familiar with in terms of the text. So anyways, I, you know, there's maybe some hope in here, Manuel, but I, I, I remain highly skeptical is, <laughs> is the end point here. Yeah. Big time, big time. And Jeff, next story. Um, has to do with a um, police officer who went into a classroom. And I, I hope a lot of teachers saw this story when it first came out. Uh, this was, I think, earlier in December, like mid-December. Uh, December 8th is when the incident happened. Um, because, like, this is just, like, outrageous. But, Jeff, talk to us about this police officer who went into a middle school classroom on the hunt for a book. A book called Gender Queer. Yeah, man. Well, this this is a crazy story. Like genuinely, this is one of the craziest things I've I've heard in education. And we talk about crazy stuff on the show all the time. But this is right up. This is like top five. What kind of insanity is happening out here? OK, so we're going to be citing a little bit from two different articles. One is in the Berkshire Eagle appeared on December 20th, which was shortly after this incident actually happened in the great, uh, uh, sorry, um, the Berkshire Eagle written by uh, Heather Bellow. And it's titled the police officer who searched for a book in a great Barrington classroom also used a body camera. The ACLU has deep concerns. I bet you they have deep concerns. Um, and then the second article is in the Messenger News and uh, was written by Brinley uh, Heineman. And is entitled Body Cam Footage Shows Officers Search Massachusetts Middle School for Gender Queer Memoir. Um, so uh, you can <laughs> you can bet that this is wild and crazy. <laughs> OK, and, and pretty much as you can infer, um, a cop goes into a school to do a book ban and it's so ridiculous and offensive. It's hard to find words for. Um, OK, so. I think a little bit of context here would be helpful, right? There was an anonymous complaint that led the Great Barrington Police to open a probe about whether parts of the book Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe, I hope I'm saying that name correctly, could be considered obscene material or pornographic. Police then notified the Berkshire District Attorney's Office, folks who don't know the Berkshire uh, region, the, the mountains, uh, are like Western Massachusetts, very beautiful part of the country, by the way, if you've never been, especially in the fall, like stunning, you should go there. And also what the heck is happening in the schools in the Berkshires right now? Um, so, uh, police then notified Ber the Berkshire district attorney's office as per the department's policy. They also notified school and district administrators. They were coming to the classroom and the officer was escorted there by the school principal. The teacher who kept the book in her resource library was surprised to see the officer. Uh, <laughs> the officer announced he was turning on his body camera and then looked for the book and did not find it there. There's also, uh, a number of sort of records about um, or references online you can find uh, with with a Google search about some of the things the officer said. I believe the Daily Beast has also released the actual body camera uh, camera footage at this point. Um, but this this Manuel is like the next 
the next level, I guess, of insanity that we are seeing. Um, actual police who, in theory, are supposed to be keeping us safe, right? Um, and apparently, there's no actual crime happening in the Berkshire region of Massachusetts that this police officer could have been busy solving or preventing or keeping people safe from in some way, uh, and instead found time in his day to go into a school and begin harassing a teacher about the presence of a book that I haven't read this book, have no idea what's actually in this book, Manuel, but I feel very certain in saying that there's probably at least a few kids at this school that saw this book and said, oh, wow. There's something here that speaks to me about my experience, and maybe I can see myself in some aspect in the in the larger curriculum in this school or kids at this school who saw this book and said, hey, I know someone else who is maybe having an experience similar to this author and I want to learn more about it so I can be a better friend or a better cousin or just so I can better understand other people's experience and develop empathy. Whoo. Wow, what a fancy word. Empathy uh, <laughs> about about other people's experience. In particular, a group of people who we know from all available data are some of the most marginalized people in our society, are at some of the greatest risk for self-harm and suicide attempts and suicide completions in our society, who are some of, some of the folks at the greatest risk of becoming homeless as a child because they get kicked out by their family or that sort of thing, right? And what a beautiful thing it is that someone would write a book to speak to some of those young people's experience, that, that they would write a book that would help other people understand some aspect of this group of people's experience to be a better person, a more loving and supportive person, a more kind and generous and empathetic person, and in the face of all that, this police department and district attorney found time in their schedule in a country that's full of rapes and, and assaults and gun crimes and white collar criminals out here stealing pensions and all this kind of stuff. They found time to go into a middle school and harass this teacher for having this affirming book on the shelf. And I think it's disgusting. I think it's it is it's extremely revealing about the um, the extent to which our public resources are being misused, not in the ways that we often think, but misused in the form of police, misused in the form of repression uh, of important ideas and, and experiences um, in this country. And, um, you know, I, I will see. Apparently, the school board is going to uh, take this topic up in more detail at an upcoming January 11th board meeting. Um, but the the police department did put out a letter of apology. Um, the, oh, I should say the police. Yes, the police department's Facebook page put out a letter of apology from the police chief that said, in part, I apologize to anyone who was negatively affected by our involvement at the W.E.B. Du Bois. Okay. Okay. Middle school <laughs> on yeah. December 8th. 
Uh, <laughs> over the years, our relationship with our schools has been positive and collaborative. So together we work with the school to try to navigate this sensitive situation, right? You know, it's a, it's a, it's whatever it's, I'm sure some PR person wrote a nice apology letter for him, but <sighs> man, well, I, it's, it's hard for me to put this all into words. I, I am saddened deeply for this teacher, for the students at this school, for the community that's having its resources misused in this kind of way. And this is the kind of thing that makes me just hope that that in in sort of response to this, there's a genderqueer book in every library in every school in Massachusetts from now to the end of time, because like this is just crazy. It's this insanity that we are seeing here, Manuel. And it and it is Part of, you know, part of this sort of larger attempt to actually do harm uh, to young people. And, um, you know, props to this teacher for not, you know, sort of handing over the book. Uh, it sounds like maybe they didn't know where it was at the time. And I hope that this this will mean this is the last of this kind of thing that we see happening in our schools, even though that's probably not the case. <laughs> but one can yeah. hope. One that that is true. One can hope. One can hope for sure. Uh, just a reminder: this is in Massachusetts, so-called blue state. Mm. Uh, just another reminder. I don't know how many times we said it on the show. I know we've said it quite a few times. This when we talk about these issues, this is not something that's just unique to Florida or Texas or whatever. Yeah, this is a very terrifying story. At, at first, when I heard it, when I saw it circulating on social media, I, I wasn't quite clear how how it went down. And in my head, I'm like, was this just some rogue police officer who was like sitting in his patrol car, scrolling through Twitter and seeing some report about this gender queer book in an elementary school or, or a middle school, I should say, and just decided to roll up on them? I'm pleased that that's not how it happened, but it doesn't make me feel much better that it happened even the way it did. Was, you know, so officially and like never being an unconformed, um, there being an anonymous report and, you know, him, him going through the motions of like, you know, turning on the body camera and getting the administrator and all that stuff. That doesn't make me feel a whole lot better because either way, obviously this shouldn't happen. Imagine, imagine calling the police department and letting them know that like the U.S. history book in such and such middle school um, makes it seem like the Civil War wasn't really about slavery. Like imagine, would the police go and pull up to that school and like take that book because it's teaching these lies about American history? Like, of course not. Like there's only only one category of books that they would be, you know, spurned to go and and take from classrooms. And this idea of this gender queer book being inappropriate, um, the officer in the body camera uh, kept saying, uh, using a quote, uh, stuff like that, stuff like that. Like, okay, what stuff, what stuff specifically, what, what images specifically, and what mm. about those images specifically, uh, lead for you to want to, uh, hunt down this book. Um, but yeah, we can't, we can't call the police to take out all these, uh, old whitewashed history books. We can't call police to take out all these books that act like uh, Native American folks uh, no longer exist and don't have a place. Uh, we can't call police to, to go and, and take out all these books that that act like, uh, you know, uh, there's no uh, no real contributions to the growth of the United States or to our society by from Jewish folks or from other folks. Like We can't call the police to do any of that. But hey, genderqueer, hey, go get them, go get them. And the police went and got them or tried to. Yeah, very, uh, very dis disturbing. And I I would remind folks that this this element of the so-called culture wars, which are not culture wars at all, but uh, outrightly an attack on marginalized peoples and marginalized perspectives, um, this element of it also 
uh, was nurtured by the same bad faith actors who who went after CRT. Remember, the first wave was CRT, and once they dug in with that, the next wave was the you know Florida don't say gay uh, bill and and this whole idea that that teachers are indoctrinated indoctrinating their their students to be to be gay and to be trans and all that. That was like the second wave. So we have all these CRT bands. Uh, we have all these bands on uh, LGBTQ perspectives um, and experiences and voices. And we talked earlier about DEI, which is 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 next in line. Like this is all an extension from the same bad faith actors, and this is all a response to the calls, the cries for for justice and the cries for equity of the summer 2020. And we got to be ready, man. This is a terrifying thing. Like I'm, I'm thinking about those teachers, though this teacher in particular, how terrifying it must be for a police officer to to walk up to you and ask for a particular resource that was reported in your classroom, no matter what the resource is. Like that's got to be a terrifying experience. Um, so I feel for the teacher in this case, and I feel for all those other teachers and librarians uh, and educators of all sorts out there that are are worried and and rightfully scared of of who's going to pull up next. Like, will it be in this case, it was a police officer. Will it be a, a parent? Will it be some some crazy person who just saw some some stuff online and and you know they're going to take it into their own hands uh, to to so called protect these kids? Some some PizzaGate type folks. Like, it's dangerous times, man. And and all all we're trying to do is is educate the youth and help them uh, see themselves and, and feel valued and, and understand other perspectives as well and, and and see each other and see other communities as as fully human and fully deserving of freedom and and rights and humanity like that's all we're trying to do and yet it's becoming so so fraught and so dangerous or it has become so fraught and so dangerous it's just a very very uh, just another story that just highlights how bad things have gotten with regards to um politics in the classroom remember jeff when it was like when the big talk i think our very first episode was just talking about like you know very politics in the classroom one. yeah you know yeah. and it's just like whoa man the same folks that are like keep politics out have like fully fully like weaponized politics and politicians and lobbying and organizing to absolutely destroy like any any emergence of of actual um truthful humanizing curriculum and teaching just uh my goodness, man, how far have so yeah, you said this was one of the craziest stories. I, I'd have to dig through the crates because we've had a lot of crazy stories, but this is one of the ones that I don't think is um, you know, this isn't gonna be the last time we see something like this. To me, this is more a sign of of things to come because again, this was Massachusetts, you know, so ah man. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, Jeff. I, I worry that you're right, to be honest. I, I think you probably are. I'm hoping that the the public imagery of this is so embarrassing and so obviously like totalitarian and dystopian that 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 it's like, ah, oh, we gotta not do that. But um this is where we are now. You know, this this is where we are now. And I, I what you said about the impact on the teacher, I mean it is it's I I have so much uh, empathy for that teacher to like imagine, like you said, being in your classroom and in comes this cop who wants to turn on their body camera, which in theory, I don't know this teacher's identity. It's not revealed in the in the articles that that we saw. But 
I, I'm like, as a black person in this country, like turning on the body camera is a signal that like you're going to do something problematic. And now you're turning this on to like stack the deck in your favor uh, while you, you know, while you do something, there's no real accountability for cops in this country. And to, you know, to see that the chilling effect that 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 this kind of thing must have right um the threat the, the overt threat to your professional security to your personal safety you know uh, when this body camera footage goes out and your identity gets revealed and these nutty right-wing extremists are going to find you and come to your house and talk about how you're corrupting the minds of the youth or whatever i mean it's it is it's so so problematic man um and so yeah. it it is I, I'm glad that the police department fell back a little bit. I hope that the board there takes some very, you know, um, aggressive actions to prevent this kind of thing from from happening. And, you know, that the reaction to this is these these right wing Karens who are out here complaining about a genderqueer book or whatever, like go homeschool your kid then. You know, you don't want your kid exposed to books that teach them about other types of people in the world. It's a free country. You can stay home and homeschool your own child and teach them to be ignorant and hateful and violent all you want. You shouldn't, but you can. It's a free world, right? Uh, but you don't have the right to bring those kind of hateful beliefs and, and religious extremist beliefs and those sorts of things into the public sphere and expect it to be, you know, supported with public dollars. Um uh, so, I know, man. Well, we uh, to me, that's a top five all time crazy story. Um, I, I, you know, we'll see how it develops. Maybe we'll have the opportunity to talk more about some of the next steps that come out of this. But crazy yeah. times here, and uh, you know, the end of twenty twenty three and the beginning of twenty twenty four here in public education. Yeah, yeah, you really got me thinking about whether or not this cracks the top five of, of wildest stories. I, th I think we should dig through the crates, maybe one of these upcoming passing periods, because folks, it's, it's January and we are like, you know, getting back into the swing of things. So um, it might be a second before, it might be a minute before we have a, a, a super dope guest on. So we're going to have uh, several passing periods on the way. Maybe one of those, Jeff, we take a look at. Maybe we try to, to, to just, you know, have our rankings of, of wildest stories because, to me, I'm thinking about that that story, and I don't remember all the details, but it was like a fake school that never existed that was out in like I think it was Nebraska or something. And I say, was it South Dakota? South, it was yeah, that's where it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was. Um, I just remember that story just got weirder and weirder the the deeper we went into it. Uh, anyways, um, all right. So that would be for another time. But we do have one last one last story to touch on. We'll touch on this one quickly before we get out of here, but. Obviously, and uh, much to the dismay of uh, millions and millions of people around the world, um, the continued continued attacks on the people of Gaza, uh, they continue on. And the we've been talking about Israel and Palestine on this show here and there since since October. You know, we had Dr. Uh, Sosan Jabber on to uh, help us unpack the just the, what it means to be a Palestinian educator uh, working with Palestinian students at this time. And we do have a story here about the Department of Education, uh, somebody in the de Department of Education doing something uh, to try to, to to try to make some some headway into convincing the president to finally call for a ceasefire because damn it, man, I don't know. The latest number I saw was close to 30,000 or around 30,000 
people killed. And I don't know what number will be the number that that convinces the president and other leaders to finally say, like, enough is enough. But uh, what do we have? What did this uh, Department of Education official, um, who is he? What did he do? Uh, talk to us, Jeff. Yeah. Well, I think, Matt, well, just to answer the question you gave, it's very clear that there won't be a number. It uh, is clear. They have no regard for the for the lives of Palestinian people. And uh, the only thing that would change his opinion is either money, public embarrassment, or mass, you know, political movement here. But um, yeah, this this article is pretty interesting. Uh, it's in Axios, uh, written by Rebecca Falconer. Uh, this is dated January 4th, titled Second Biden Admin Official Resigns Over President's Response to the Gaza War, uh, which is also uh, something I think we need to correct the record on. This is not a war on Gaza or a war against um, Hamas. This is Israel that has an army committing ethnic cleansing and genocide against the prisoners, the captives held in Gaza who are not allowed to leave, uh, who are being ethnically cleansed, bombed, and intentionally killed by a genocidal campaign launched by Israel's military with the very full, ongoing, and escalating support of the American government and the American military. Uh, so... Now that we've talked some facts here, uh, this administrator, um, Tariq Habash, uh, is at least the second official and the first who's known to be of Palestinian origin to resign in protest over the U.S. response to the genocidal campaign in Gaza. Um, and he issued a he's made a couple of media appearances, I believe, and issued a um, a resignation letter that uh, said in part things like, but now the actions of the Biden-Harris administration have put millions of innocent lives in danger, most immediately for the 2.3 million civilians living in Gaza who remain under continuous assault and ethnic cleansing by the Israeli government. I cannot stay silent as this administration turns a blind eye to the atrocities committed against innocent Palestinian lives in what leading human rights experts have called a genocidal campaign by the Israeli government. Um, this, of course, is an interesting move because not every day that this kind of thing happens and because this particular official in the U.S. Department of Education, notably, um, is of Palestinian descent. Uh, but also, you know, I think it's it's one small piece of a larger puzzle of like what language are we using to talk about what's happening in Israel and Palestine right now? And what role do we as educators, and I don't know if this gentleman would consider himself really an educator as much as more of a, you know, a political appointee who happens to work in the, uh, you know, in the U.S. Department of Education. But I think as we talk about a lot, Manuel, on this show, the, you know, the, the sort of ever-present question of like, what role does school have in talking about these issues of moral crisis in our society? And this is certainly one because our country, I mean, it would be anyways, because we are an interconnected web of humanity, but most directly, we're sending billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, over to Israel to right now, we're sending billions more at, along with weapons to kill more Palestinians and blow up their homes and hospitals and schools. 
And, you know, what role do, do we as educators have in speaking truthfully about this and outright opposing or speaking about a philosophical and moral position of opposition to genocide and ethnic cleansing? Like these are inherently wrong things. And we as educators do play a role in the moral education of, of young people. Um, and so what role do we have in taking a stand and saying, this is, this is wrong. This is something that shouldn't be happening. Um, and, uh, and so I applaud, uh, the courageousness of Tark. Uh, you know, I, I wish that more appointees, uh, would take this kind of stance or more people in positions of power would either take a stand like this and say, I cannot be a part of an administration that would behave this way, um, or who would come out publicly in opposition and then use their power to do things that oppose, um, the president and the, you know, members of the United, uh, left and right members of Congress, um, I shouldn't say left and right. I should say right and center right uh, members of Congress who, uh, you know, who are perpetuating a genocide right now. And um, so props to Tarek. You know, I hope we see more uh, actions like this or otherwise of people using their power uh, to oppose this. And I think it, it has clearly crossed into the territory, much like we talk about other genocides in history with with no like timidity, if that's a word, no timidness. Is that the right word? Anyways, we shouldn't be timid in how we talk about this because there's there's a very, very crystal clear right and wrong in this equation. It's actually not comp, uh, complicated. Um, the actions of the Israeli military are illegal. They are immoral. They are genocidal and committing acts of ethnic cleansing absolutely must at, at a minimum must stop. Then we can get to the conversation about reparations and justice, right? But like at a bare minimum, it must stop and not pause to get some rice and flour in and then we'll bomb you again, but stop permanently. Uh, and then we can talk about what what reparations look like. So I, I applaud this. I hope we see more of it, Manuel. Yeah, that's another hope. That's another hope of yours, Jeff, that I'm not so sure um, I'm hopeful about. But I, I certainly do hope that we see more of this, because regardless of how anybody feels like I, I just feel like at this point, at this point, it's so crystal clear that thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people are being killed and being destroyed and families being destroyed who have nothing to do with nothing that happened uh, on October 7th, have nothing to do with nothing. They're just literally trying to survive. And even if you're barely paying attention at all, like you probably at least caught a little bit at the beginning about, uh, you know, Israel preparing to go into Gaza and, and notifying people in Gaza to evacuate northern Gaza. And hopefully you're catching just a little bit about the fact that like these bombs are falling all across Gaza, like the, the same places that people have been told to to go to to shelter, to to seek safety are the same places that are being bombed and being destroyed. And it's just so frustrating to continue to hear um, hear people just like come up with a million different excuses of why we should just accept this. And, you know, one thing that I 
one of the things I had a problem with in this in this piece, besides the headline, is just that, uh, you know, it had a line in there that I keep seeing come up when it comes to, you know, Biden in this issue. It said, uh, quote, many Arab American voters feel betrayed. And it went on to, you know, talk about for because of Biden's response and this and that. And it's like, no, stop, stop making it sound like it's just Arab American voters that are betrayed or Arab American voters who are uh, potentially not going to uh, support Biden. And then because of that, he might lose. Like, no, it's not just Arab American voters. All right. Like, I'm not Arab. Um, I'm not Muslim. And I am here knowing for a fact that I cannot vote the same way I voted last election period. I just can't. Um, I was on a town hall with uh, my local congressional rep- representative, you know, for everybody that's like, oh, you know, but what could I do? What could I do? You know, one one basic little thing, of course, is to call your representatives. Um and take part when they do have town halls, either in person or, or in my case, it was a telephone ta- town hall. And I've been part of a few of them now. And I never used to, you know, dial into these little town halls because whatever, I'm busy. I don't care. Um, but ever since this issue in, in my local representative, uh, congressional representative absolutely refuses to call for a ceasefire. And it's just every time he speaks in the town hall, I just get more and more enraged. So I just know for a fact I cannot vote for this man. I just cannot. Like this most recent town hall, he was he mentioned, you know, somebody, you know, a lot of the callers are saying, um, you know, what are we going to do? Like, what could be done to like pressure Israel to like protect innocent lives and to to do this and to do that? And one caller identified himself as as Jewish, and he he asked, "What can be done to pressure Israel to to protect innocent lives in Gaza?" That was that was his question. And the my representative said, "Like, oh, we're already doing that. We're already pressuring Israel to protect innocent lives." But the problem is, Hamas is hiding behind human shields, and Hamas is you know uh, is hiding behind civilians. And and my congressional representative, sorry to go on on this rant here, but my congressional representative, Brad Sherman, uh, he said on this call that one third of the people who've been killed in Gaza are Hamas. And he said, and I'm quoting here, word word for word, because I don't want to, you know, get in any trouble or anything like that. This is literally what he said in this public town hall. He said, quote, um, this is actually considered a lower number of civilians than you'd expect in terms of the total number killed. He said one third are Hamas. So therefore, the amount of actual civilians killed is just two thirds. And when you look at that number, it's actually lower than you'd expect. Like what? Like that's his response to like 30,000 people are dead. And I'm seeing videos. I'm seeing videos of children who are dead. I'm seeing videos of children with their limbs blown off. And your response to me is that this is actually a lower number than you'd expect. Like what the hell? So shout out to this Department of Education uh, administrator for, you know, for at least at least making some headlines by uh, by um, resigning and making a statement about it. But like, whoa, man, this is just bad, man. This is just so bad. And I'm sitting here. I'm so angry now because I'm re- reminding myself of all the things my congressional rep said about like this. And he was like, you know, people get upset about these numbers, but they don't get upset about all the people who are dying in, in Tigray and these other areas of the world. And I'm like, well, we're not funding the weapons that like we're not directly supporting. The, the, uh, it's, I, won't, I won't get into it. I'll shut up there. All right. It's, it's, Jeff. it's just wild, man. We I've been it, posting it on social media recently, Manuel, somewhat repeatedly with just the line we are ruled by monsters and i'm like I, I, not not to go too far afield from our you know our lane here but i'm just like it's the, the level of moral bankruptcy but oh i can't talk the level of moral bankruptcy of that kind of comment is you know it, it, it's hard to quantify right like what's how can you be more 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 morally bankrupt than all the way bankrupt you could be negatively bankrupt i guess uh but yeah man we uh bringing this back uh 
we got a lot of work to do as a people. And I, you know, I was having a conversation with uh, my girlfriend recently where I was like, where there's children, there's hope. And that is what I am trying to lean into hard <laughs> these days, True. man. Well, because I'm like the adults, we out here messing up, man. Like, it's not it with the adults. But um, where there is children, there is hope. So I'm going to I'm going to hold on to that right here on our first episode of the the year 2024. And um, and just wish everyone a happy new year and hope you are you are well for those who are about to start school on Monday. Good luck. Keep speaking and teaching truth to the children, and um, you know, let's let's organize and stay together out here. Yeah, big facts right there. And if anybody's feeling like they need a more hopeful conversation, um, or you know, just you know, something something to get you going for the new year, I, I definitely recommend digging through the crates. Uh, I, I I personally would recommend going back to our conversation with Dr. Goldie Muhammad, um, episode one hundred and seven, or full episode one hundred and seven. That was back in September, um, unearthing joy amid troubling times, um, or the one that came right after that, the the full episode that came right after that, uh, dope teaching and doctoral work with Lamar Timmons Long, just for uh, conversations to get you right for the new year for this semester uh, to get you right on our purpose here, our purpose of uh, really cultivating um, justice and joy in our classroom and and really helping our, 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 our young ones out in terms of seeing their full human selves and seeing the humanity in others and coming together to, to create a, a, a better world than the one that we are, um, are handing off to them. So definitely, you know, go back to the crates and check those out if you feel like you need a little boost as you head back to the classroom. All right. So that about does it for this week's passing period. We uh, super appreciate everybody uh, for all the support and for listening and sharing and all that stuff and just all the different ways that you've shown support uh, over time. And anybody who's still listening to this episode, here we are like 100, 100, uh, an hour in like 15 minutes in, and you're still with us. Uh, super appreciate that. Um, remember, we got this. Uh, remember, we love y'all. And um, it's time for you to go ahead and get to class.